Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, This is My Body. It's based upon the lectionary readings for April 28, 2019. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. Love wins. We are a resurrection people. The victory is ours, and nothing on earth will ever be the same again. Right? Right? Welcome to the week after, the week after euphoria, the week after triumph, the week after Easter lilies, egg hunts, brunches, trumpets, vigils, baptisms, and alleluias. This is the point in the liturgical year when we take a good hard look at God's post-resurrection world and think, now what? Or, if we're painfully, brutally honest, so what? I don't know about you, but I am beyond grateful for the gospel reading from St. John this week because it reminds me that the resurrection story honors these questions. Our glorious Easter hymns notwithstanding, the week after has always been murky, messy, and complicated. I'm not the first human being to struggle with it, and I won't be the last. In fact, struggle seems to be intrinsic to the post-Easter story. Here are two ways that I think the Gospel reading reflects what real life looks like after the empty tomb. 1. Jesus appears to his disciples in a body that is resurrected but still wounded. In my experience, Christians put a lot of stock in victory. We value the race won, the mountain scaled, the enemy defeated, the obstacle overcome. We welcome stories of failure to an extent, but only when those stories are shared in retrospect, long after the sordid worst is over. Sin that is surrendered to holiness? That's a Christian story. But sin that clings, challenges that won't ease up, a wound, physical, psychological, or relational, that remains? We squirm, we turn our eyes away. We worry. But Jesus' wounded body reminds me that some hurts are for keeps. Some markers of pain, loss, trauma, and horror leave traces that no amount of piety will take away. I, for example, will never become a woman who was not molested as a little girl. My teenage son will never become an adult who didn't spend a chunk of his adolescence in chronic pain. My daughter's body will never become one that didn't battle anorexia. Some wounds remain, even after resurrection. The fact is, change and growth occur slowly. I've rarely, if ever, experienced instant transformation. The changes that matter most have always come sideways and in fits and starts, often without my conscious understanding or effort. Anyone who has battled an addiction or stuck it out in a challenging relationship or lived with a chronic illness will testify that genuine conversion is lifelong. Maybe this is why the earliest Christians referred to their new faith as the way. A way is not a destination. It's a road to walk. It's an invitation to journey. Jesus' resurrected body retained its scars. Not old scars. Not neat, faded scars signaling a long-ago victory on a half-forgotten battlefield. But fresh wounds still raw enough to allow a doubting disciple to place his fingers inside. I imagine Jesus winced when Thomas touched him. But that wincing, that pain, that openness signaled real life. Real engagement, real presence. It spoke the very words Thomas hungered for the most. I'm here. I'm here with you. I don't float a few sanitized feet above reality. Even after death, I dwell in the hot, searing heart of things, exactly where you dwell. We live in a culture that worships artifice. All around us, people package themselves, market themselves, pummel themselves into versions of perfection that choke their souls. But if Jesus, even at the apex of his resurrection victory, sported his open wounds without shame or apology. 
then maybe we don't need to worry so much about glossy presentation. Maybe Christianity's best appeal is in its willingness to embrace real bodies, real scars, real pain. After all, it is with our bodies that we experience deep trauma, deep anger, deep terror, and deep joy. It's my chest that hurts when I mourn. It's my face that burns when I'm angry. It's my whole body that warms at pleasure when I'm happy. In this resurrection, Jesus honored the body. He honored the bruised, broken, wounded, and disabled body. He honored the real-life bodies in which we live. No, our wounds aren't pretty, and no, they don't tell the whole story of who we are. But the stories they tell are holy. If Jesus himself didn't fear the bloody and the broken, then perhaps those of us walking in his footsteps don't need to fear them so much either. 2. Thomas enters into a community of faith, but openly voices his doubt. Let's face it, Thomas often gets a bad rap in church. Though his story is one of the few in the three-year cycle of the Revised Common Lectionary that never changes, we always read about his encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the Sunday after Easter. It is often cast in negative terms. He's most famously known as Doubting Thomas, the cynic, the holdout. His reluctance to accept the testimony of his fellow disciples, his insistence on physical proof, his late arrival to the joyous belief of his peers, these are often described as spiritual flaws, as signs of stubbornness or of a weak faith. But weakness is not what I see in Thomas. I see a man who yearned for a living encounter with Jesus, a man who wouldn't settle for someone else's experience of resurrection, but stuck around in the hope of having his own. A man who dared to confess uncertainty in the midst of those who were certain. A man who recognized his Lord in woundedness, not glory. According to John's Gospels, Thomas had to wait in suspense and uncertainty for a whole week after his friends first told him they had seen Jesus. What, I wonder, did that week feel like for the disciple who missed Jesus the first time around? Did he pity his fellow disciples in their grief-stricken delusions? Or did he fear, as I so often do, that he'd miss the memo, miss the boat, miss the glory? that he was destined only ever to know God secondhand. What strikes me most about Thomas's story is not that he doubted, but that he did so publicly, without shame or guilt, and that his faith community allowed him to do so. And what I love about Jesus' response is that he met Thomas right where he was, freely offering the disciple the testimony of his own wounds, his own pain. After such an encounter, I can only imagine the tenderness and urgency with which Thomas was able to repeat Christ's words to other doubters. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because isn't this all of us on the Sunday after Easter? Don't we all wrestle with hidden doubts, hidden fears? Don't we all wonder sometimes if the miracle of resurrection will hold in ordinary time? If nothing else, Thomas reassures me that faith doesn't have to be straightforward. The business of accepting the resurrection, of living it out, of sharing it with the world is tough. It's okay to waver. It's okay to take our time. It's okay to hope for more. Wounds and doubts. The encounter between them is what life looks like after the tomb. When Thomas's doubts met Jesus' wounds, new life erupted, faith blossomed, and the community grew. Resurrection happened all over again. During this week after, may the same be true for each of us. For books this week, Dan reviews Now Go Out There by Mary Carr. This little volume isn't a book of the normal sense of the word. Rather, it's Mary Carr's speech to the 2015 graduating class of Syracuse University, where she has taught for 25 years and was awarded an honorary doctorate. The speech later burned up the Twitter sphere. I think of this little gem as a counterintuitive secular sermon full of wise advice. 
Carr drops all pretense of formality and instead addresses the graduates with her trademark humor, her Texas drawl, and especially her own story. My goal in high school was to stay out of the penitentiary, so if I can go from there to standing up here, y'all can all get yourselves gainful employment of some kind. Yes, those are your parents clapping. Beyond the irony, Carr explores the themes of fear and anxiety, those times, quote, when the world scares you with its barks and bites. She knows what she's talking about. In three best-selling memoirs, Carr has described growing up with a psychotic mother who packed a pistol, nearly drank herself to death, wielded a butcher knife at her two children, and married seven times. The Liars Club covered her childhood days in a small town near Port Arthur, Texas, and then Cherry treated her adolescent years. In an interview with the New York Times, Carr describes her third volume, Lit, as, quote, my journey from black belt sinner and lifelong agnostic to unlikely Catholic. There was a drink and drug fueled period in California after high school and then two years in college before she dropped out, which also included a professor who, in the mysteries of fate, became a lifelong force for good. An improbable marriage to a man who was her polar opposite, mega-wealthy Boston Brahmin, lasted eight years and produced a son. But divorce, penury, endless therapy, repeated relapses, and hospitalization in a psychiatric ward for, quote, persistent suicide ideation all followed. And so she describes herself as a lifelong squeaker, just getting by, as opposed to an A-maker. She wonders aloud, was all this good for me or bad for me? Our hard times, she believes, can lead us not just to a breakdown, but to a breakthrough, especially if they lead us to greater compassion and tenderness for ourselves and for others. That sounds a lot like Romans 8, 28, and 29. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. This quirky film by Joel and Ethan Cohen earned three nominations for the 2019 Oscars, including Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Song. It was also listed on numerous top ten films of the year lists. The movie is a good example of the changing distribution channels and funding of even mainstream movies. The film was available on Netflix just one week after its release in nationwide theaters. The genre here is unique. It's really a mini-anthology of six unrelated vignettes that are set in America's Wild West, and that feature the likes of James Franco and Liam Neeson. The episodes include a guitar-strumming gunslinger, a bank robber, a traveling entertainer, an elderly prospector, a wagon train, and a perverse pair of bounty hunters. As you would expect from the Coen brothers, there is gratuitous violence, absurdist and black humor, romance, poignant drama, and spectacular scenery from the filming in New Mexico and Nebraska and Colorado. There's also their signature reflection on our human condition. We often valorize the Wild West, but for the Coens, it was also a violent and even nihilistic time and place. And finally, for poetry on the second Sunday after Easter, The Servant Girl at Emmaus by Denise Levertov. She listens, listens, holding her breath. Surely that voice is his, the one who had looked at her once across the crowd as no one ever had looked, had seen her, had spoken as if to her. Surely those hands were his, taking the platter of bread from hers just now, hands he laid on the dying and made them well. Surely that face. The man they crucified for sedition and blasphemy, the man whose body disappeared from its tomb, the man it was rumored now so when some women had seen this morning, alive. Those who had brought the stranger home to their table don't recognize yet with whom they sit. But she in the kitchen, absently touching the wine jug she's to take in, a young black servant intently listening, swings round, 
and sees the light around him and is sure. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 28th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.